0: Good morning. morning. So great to see everybody here today, and this is the uh, Fourth of July weekend, Um, something that we all enjoy celebrating. It it occurred to me, as um, Kelly mentioned, tomorrow being the fourth, that I don't remember a lot of specific Fourth of July. Uh, They just kind of all run together, you know picnics and fireworks and celebrations and things of that nature. But one that I do remember very, very distinctly, it's 52 years ago tomorrow, uh, Linda and I left Abilene, Texas, headed for St. Louis, Missouri to uh, begin our life in ministry. It was 107 degrees. And there was a hot wind blowing, hot, dry wind. And uh, Linda was seven months pregnant with Stacy. So she was driving our 69 Camaro. Yeah. Didn't know that about me, did you? And and I was driving the unair conditioned rental truck. And uh, I thought at first, you know, the way to deal with this is just open those vents. Some of you don't even know what a vent on a car is, but there, they used to have air vents. You know, you'd pull a little knob, and it would open a little door, and air would come in down low. And I rolled down the windows, and I, you know, had the, the little wing windows, and I had those aimed right at me. I thought, this, this will get me through. I thought I would die. <laughs> that air coming in was so hot, I couldn't stand it. So I closed all those vents, closed those windows, and just... Sat there and sweated and just rode it out. I don't know how hot it got in that truck, but I was surprised that we made it. But I thought, well, this is a great introduction to ministry. But uh, (laughs) nevertheless, a memorable, memorable day, uh, one that I'll never forget. I hope that yours is a lot better than that tomorrow, and uh, hope that you uh, enjoy the freedoms that we have, and so glad that you're enjoying the freedom that we have to worship together today. If someone were to ask you to describe how much God has forgiven you, how much mercy he has had on you, what would you say? You know, you can't really quantify a thing like that, can you? If you said, well, he's, he's forgiven me a million, then the question would be, why not a billion? Why not a trillion? Why not a whatever goes beyond that? You might answer something like, he's forgiven me infinitely. He's forgiven me more than, than I deserve. But we really can't put a number on it. We really can't put an amount on it. We really can't measure it. We can't weigh it. We can't count it. But it com- when it comes to our forgiving other people, it's a different story, isn't it? We do a lot of counting. We do a lot of remembering. We do a lot of quantifying. Peter was trying to quantify forgiveness in Matthew 18, verse 21, when he approached Jesus and he said, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. He wanted a number. He wanted to quantify the forgiveness that he owed to anyone who might sin against him. That's how we think. This conversation between Peter and Jesus forms the climax of this chapter that Jesus gives us on kingdom relationships. And it started with the question, too, remember? It started with that a question of who is the greatest among the apostles, which led to Jesus teaching a lesson on humility. And putting a little child in their midst and telling them, unless you become like this child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Not only will you not be the greatest, you can't even be in it. Unless you stop this thirst for status. Unless you stop swaggering and start serving. You can't even be in my kingdom. Then he continued with his command to see that you do not despise one of these little ones who believe in me. And that marvelous parable about the shepherd who had a hundred sheep, but one of them got lost and he went and searched for it until he found it. The point being that everybody in the kingdom counts. Everybody in the kingdom counts equally. And that we cannot discount anybody. And that that means forgiveness. Peter's been listening to all this and that got him to thinking about forgiveness. And I suppose his thinking ran something like this. Well, Lord, that's all well and good. But how far do you go with it? How far do you go with it? Especially how far do you go when somebody sins against you repeatedly? And you repeatedly forgive them. At what point is there a limit? At what point have you simply become an enabler of their sin? At what point do you need to stop that forgiveness process? And so he tried to quantify forgiveness. He said as many as seven times. Now, the rabbis in Jesus' day had already done this math. They said three times. Three times is the max. Beyond that, the person no longer deserves your forgiveness. Beyond that, you're simply being overindulgent. So they said three, and no more than three. So Peter took that three, doubled it, and added one. I don't know if he had read their their writings or not. I kind of doubt that he had. But whether he had or not, he probably knew their, their thinking, knew the idea that was floating around in those days. And so he doubled it and added one, and said, so as many as seven times. And then after that, does it someone still deserve forgiveness. I'm sure he thought he was being generous, but Jesus' answer must have stunned him because Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, there are some ways of translating the Greek that that can come out as 70 times seven, and you may have that in a footnote in your Bible. But whether it's 77 times or 70 times 7, it doesn't really matter. The point is this. You cannot quantify your forgiveness of others any more than you want God to quantify his forgiveness of you. Just think of that. Suppose you were to be forced at the beginning of your life. Name a number. Name a number of times that God will forgive you throughout your life and no more. None of us would want to do it, would we? We wouldn't know how to think of a number big enough. And we'd live our whole lives in fear that we would transgress by one. The limit that we had said. You don't want to quantify your forgiveness of others, Jesus said, any more than you want God to quantify his forgiveness of you. There's a parallel text to this in Luke 17, verse 4. It says, if he sins against you seven times in the day... And turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. Seven times in the day. Peter had said, how about seven times altogether? Jesus says, even seven times a day. And he says, I repent, you must forgive him. There's really no point in counting. This is the one time we really shouldn't do the math. This is the one time that doing the math will lead us totally down the wrong path. Now, beginning in verse uh, two, Jesus illustrates that principle with, this, with an unforgettable parable. Excuse me, in verse 21. He illustrates it with this unforgettable parable about this ungrateful servant. The parable's is in four parts. Part one <clears throat> is a story about grace and forgiveness. Part one is a story about how it is in the kingdom of God. Part one is a story about how God deals with us. A king has a servant who owes him 10000 talents. Now, a talent was a unit of weight that was used to measure gold and sometimes silver. 10,000 talents was an enormous amount. If you and I had lived in the time of Jesus and we heard him say this, we probably would have laughed. We probably would have laughed as soon as he started this story because we would have thought, this is an exaggeration for a fact because how in the world could this common laborer ever get in debt 10,000 talents to some king? Because 10,000 talents, one talent, one talent was worth approximately 6,000 denarii. A Six, uh, denarii was that silver coin that a laborer got paid for a day's work. So one talent was worth 6,000 days work. So 10,000 10, talents is going to be 60 million, 60 million denarii, 60 million days work. When you have to go back to work on Tuesday morning, by the way, think about that. Okay, 60 million days work is what these, this man owed. And so there was only one way to settle the debt because he couldn't be paid. And the way to settle the debt was to sell this man and sell his family, and sell all his property, and take that in settlement of the debt, because the debt could not be paid. And we almost have to laugh when in verse 26, the debtor falls down to his knees and says, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. I will pay you everything, an absolute impossibility. There's no way, not in a 1,000 years, not in 164,000 years, if you do the math, could he possibly pay off this debt? I read recently that the U.S. national debt is now $30 trillion. But that was two days ago. It's probably $50 trillion now. Because I saw one of those little clock thingies, you know, that just shows you by the second how the debt's rolling up, and, and I thought... I'm going to put down $30 trillion here in my notes, but that's not going to be right by the time I preach this. $30 trillion. So this man telling this king that he would pay back 10,000 talents is like you or me calling up Joe Biden and saying, Joe, don't worry about the national debt. I've got it. I'll take care of it. It'll all be paid in the morning. Just let me call the bank. It's ridiculous, and this is ridiculous that this man makes this plea. Just be patient with me, and I'll pay you all that I owe. Now, his master knew that he couldn't pay back that debt, but Jesus said out of pity for him, he released him, and he forgave him the debt. No payback. No servitude to work it off. No selling of himself or anybody. No handing over of his property. No attempt to pay No partial payment. No settlement. He just gave him debt forgiveness. He just let it go. That's part one. Part two is a story of ingratitude. That same man, having been forgiven, as he's going out, apparently on the way out from this audience with this king, with the sweat still on his brow, thinking he was about to be sold into slavery, and finding that he'd been forgiven, bumps into a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. He owes him a hundred denarii, and he grabs him and he tries to choke the money out of him. And the second guy did exactly what the first one had done. He promised to pay. Just be patient with me and I'll pay you everything I owe. Here's the difference between the two men's situations. 10,000 talents was a debt so big it could not possibly have been paid. 100 denarii is a few months' wages. It was very payable. It could have been paid back. But instead of allowing him to do that and thinking, you know, I had so much mercy shown me. I'm going to show some mercy to him. Instead of doing that, He orders him to be thrown into prison until he can pay the debt, and you can't pay a debt when you're in prison. So he just has him thrown into jail permanently. Then there's part three, judgment day. Some of his fellow servants saw all this. The Bible says they were greatly distressed, and they went and told on him. And then he had to face his master, who at this time was not in such a forgiving mood. He wasn't as kindly as he had been earlier. He said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, and should you not have forgiven your fellow servant since you had been forgiven so much? He owed you just that little bit, and you wouldn't forgive him that. And I forgave you so much. And so he handed him over to the jailers, and they threw him into jail until he should pay all of his debt, which is... Never. He never gets out. And then there's part four. Verse 35, Jesus' application of all this. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know, there aren't very many times that Jesus says to his disciples, if you don't do X, God's judgment is going to fall on you. This is one time when he makes it clear. God is going to do to you what that man in the parable, that king in the parable did to his servant who was ungrateful if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. So how many times just do it? Peter's question, how do you quantify this? Jesus said, forget about that. Forget about the math. Forget about the numbers. Forget about quantifying. Forget about counting. Just do it, he says. Someone once wrote that forgiveness always seems so easy when we need it and so hard when it's time for us to give it. And forgiveness is hard work. If you've ever had to do it, and I'm sure we all have, forgiveness is hard work. Oh, there are a lot of times there's those little things that just, you know, kind of irk us and we just sort of brush them off. That's not really forgiveness. That's just kind of ignoring. I'm talking about when something has really been done to wrong you, to hurt you, to cut you deeply, to really affect your life. And then you have to turn around and forgive it. It's hard work. It's not easy to do, but it's absolutely necessary Why is it so necessary? Well, one reason it's necessary is because we can't sustain fellowship without it. That's true whether we're talking about a church, a family, a business, or any other group of people. We have to be willing and able to forgive each other or we cannot have fellowship with each other. You know, if I go into a McDonald's for lunch, forgiveness is not much of an issue. The service may be bad, the food may not be up to par, But I don't worry about forgiving anybody because I'm not trying to sustain a relationship with whoever cooked that burger. I'm not trying to sustain a relationship with the person on the other side of the counter. I'm not trying to sustain a relationship with the people in there who are eating around me. I'm just in and out and there's no big deal. But it's different when we're in relationships with others. When we are in a relationship with others that is ongoing... We're in relationships with other people where we are always hurting and disappointing and offending and ignoring each other even when we don't intend to and forgiveness is an absolute necessity or we can't keep it up. We just can't do it. It's not possible. Nowhere is that more true than in the church. The one place, the one place, the one group where forgiveness ought to be automatic and you know why it ought to be automatic? It ought to be automatic because everything we are about as the body of Christ is based on forgiveness. We're the one group in all the world that I know of where everything is based on forgiveness, on the principle of forgiveness. We are here because we've been forgiven. We are here because God has been merciful. We are here because God so loved the world that he gave his only son That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are here because of forgiveness. And so forgiveness ought to flow among us, between us, whenever it's needed, without any counting. We're the only community that's based not just on the idea of forgiveness, but the reality of forgiveness. And the only way we can maintain our fellowship is by living by that law of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And I don't hesitate to call it a law of forgiveness because when Jesus says, unless you do it, God's going to throw you into into jail forever. That's a law. That's a rule. you got to do it. Second reason why it's so important to forgive is because unforgiveness destroys us spiritually. It destroys us spiritually. When we refuse to forgive somebody, we are probably hurting ourselves more than we are them. Let me rephrase that. We are undoubtedly hurting ourselves more than we are them. Because that lack of forgiveness, that bearing of that grudge, just kind of eats away at us inside. And it changes us. It doesn't change us for the better. It makes us bitter. Someone has said that forgiveness is God's gift for us to be able to release ourselves from a past we can't change. You can't change a past You can't undo what's been done. You can't unsay what's been said, but you can forgive and let it go. Otherwise, our grudges eat away at our souls, and they leave us spiritually barren and empty. They leave us not not like Jesus, and that we cannot afford. And that leads to a third reason that we must forgive because only by forgiving one another are we able to participate in God's own nature. That's how we participate in God's own nature. You remember what Jesus said on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I find it fascinating that he didn't say, Father, if they all straighten up, or when they all come bow down before me, forgive them for they know not what, he just said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he didn't say this once it was all over. You know, a lot of times we can readily forgive when the hurt is gone and the dust has settled and and it's years past and we can look back on it and say, you know, I was really angry about that, but I'm not so angry. He said that as he was dying on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And by forgiving each other, we partake of that same divine nature and show the loving, forgiving, Christ-like spirit. But here's the fourth reason. We've got to do it because Jesus said we've got to do it. It's what he said to do. You know, there are times that we come up against things that we don't particularly want to do. We don't particularly like the idea of it. We just as soon ignore it. But we've just been told to do it. And that's true when it comes to forgiveness. It's hard work, but it's necessary work. It wasn't easy for Jesus. It won't be easy for us. But it's our only hope, Jesus says, because if we're not forgiving, we can expect no mercy from him. But because we have been forgiven, we should be able to dispense forgiveness to others. I appreciate the way Thomas Long put it in his commentary on Matthew He said, we know too well that the little boat in which we are sailing is floating on a deep sea of grace and that forgiveness is not to be dispensed with an eyedropper but with a fire hose. We're all floating on God's grace. We better be ready to hand it out to others. Remember how this whole conversation about kingdom relationships started? It started with the 12 selfishly wanting to know which of them was the greatest. We know they argued about that. We know that James and John asked to have the right and left hand seats in the kingdom. We know that the other 10 apostles were offended at them for making that request. But I just have to believe that after hearing what Jesus says in Matthew 18, they forgave each other. And I have to believe that they spent the rest of their lives proclaiming forgiveness through Jesus and continuing to forgive each other. And that's what we're supposed to do. Proclaim forgiveness and continue to forgive. Now, you may be struggling with that today. And one reason you might be struggling with it With unforgiveness is maybe you haven't experienced God's forgiveness in your life maybe you have not been on the receiving end of that gracious gift of just releasing it and letting you go instead of making you pay for all the wrongs that you've ever done or ever will do once you've experienced that forgiveness it's so much easier to hand it out to other people But maybe you have not put all your hopes in the one who was crucified for you so that you can be forgiven. Maybe you haven't confessed him as God's son and your savior. Maybe you have not died to your old self and risen to walk in a new life by being baptized into Jesus. But once you've done that, once you've done that, you can begin to know what forgiveness is really like. And then to know the joy of extending it to others. Let's stand together and sing.